and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as always with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hi, Tim. Hi, Jem. And we're going to start off with Tim talking about one of the most important venues for the initial emergence of an explicitly self-consciously gay dance scene in downtown New York in the early 70s, and that is the Continental Baths. So, Tim, what was the Continental Baths, or is it? Is, does it still exist? No, the, it was closed down at the, I'm pretty sure, at the height of the AIDS crisis in New York City. It's a bathhouse that was frequented by men and became a, a favoured place for, I guess you would call it, I don't know if you'd call it public or semi-public sex uh, for gay men. Opened in 1968 uh, in September by a guy called Steve Ostro, uh, who was a gay man who also happened to be married with two kids. And initially it opened as a as a bathhouse, throughout remained its primary role, but it did take on two other roles that became quite interesting from our point of view and which we'll return to maybe in just a bit. One was that it started to host public performances by vocalists, this became quite interesting, became quite important for its functioning. In particular, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this, but Bette Midler kind of had her breakthrough um, or one of her most important breakthroughs at the Continental Bars. And then and then secondarily, it opened uh, a public discotheque or, it, yeah, it opened a discotheque within this bathhouse. And this is significant in some ways because it um, was the first all-male gay dance venue, effectively, in New York City. As we've already discussed, places like the Sanctuary and also certainly the Loft, while significant numbers of gay men went there and the wider LGBTQ community, it was also the case that they were mixed. So it was on Fire Island in at the Ice Palace and then the Sandpiper, that what we could probably say are the first all-male gay discotheques started to take root. And the Continental Baths is the venue that became the first of this particular kind of, of spot in Manhattan, um, when effectively, uh, as I said, it opened its dis- this discotheque and gay men who had been partying all summer on Fire Island then kind of re-congregated in the bathhouse and on the dance floor in the Continental Baths. But there is a kind of an interesting back, uh, backdrop to all of this that I think is kind of quite important to explore if, if we're going to understand how the partly how the Continental Bars functioned as a venue. So do you want to provide us with a bit of that historical backdrop, Jem? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, men had been bathing together on and off, I guess, you know, historically going back to classical times. I mean, we have this strong image of the Romans. The Greeks! And the Greeks, but well, it's the Romans who were massively into baths. The Greeks were really into the gym. It's the Ro- it's the Romans whom the baths really became this kind of central social institution. But I think you have to say, up until the early twentieth century, really, it's definitely true that in places where men are going to congregate together and take their clothes off, there is a higher likelihood of people having sexual liaisons with each other than they would be in situations uh, that are you know, gender mixed or they're not taking their clothes off. But it's very tenuous to make any kind of claim about the idea of the baths being particularly associated with 
same-sex sexual activity more than other spaces, like I mean, like the gym, for example. On the other hand, I mean, certainly it seems pretty obvious, pretty self-evident, and the historical evidence seems pretty reliable that you know, there would be occasions by the sort of late 19th century in different parts of the world where there would be public baths or saunas that were all male spaces and that were known to be kind of places to go if you wanted to have sex with other men and this was certainly the case for example in London in the period between the wars there wouldn't be a very strict distinction between like a, a bath as such and a sauna uh, in London at that time or a Turkish bath it was, as it was sometimes called and there certainly were some that were associated with pretty open same-sex sex but as we talked about on the show before it's quite difficult even to really claim that people had a very strong sense of same-sex attraction defining you as a particular kind of person even up until that period between the wars but what we can say is that in the post-war period uh, over the course of the 50s and 60s to some extent as the homosexual and then eventually by the 70s the gay person starts to emerge as an identity that people can have and can be increasingly public about various types of institution and public space come to be associated with expressions of that identity and so by the early 70s this idea of the gay bathhouse starts to emerge and the continental baths is pretty important just in that history i mean the continental baths is the first one that i know of and the reason i think that's interesting from a contemporary vantage point is well just my own casual knowledge of the emergence of gay culture in America in particular over the course of the 70s and 80s, like without any academic expertise applied to it. I guess by the time I was like an undergraduate and started to study these things in university, my own very casual knowledge you know, had sort of you know, given me the idea that in the 70s there were these things called bathhouses where gay men met with each other and had lots of very promiscuous sex. And this has been a sort of central institution of gay culture up until the AIDS crisis. The image that always sticks in my mind is the famous story about Michel Foucault, no less, uh, who was a big fan of being a who was a big fan of bathhouses, apparently locking himself in a cubicle at the at a bathhouse in New York on the day that Reagan, Ronald Reagan, was elected president. All oh, right. <laughs> apparently the anecdote is he locked himself in a cubicle and wouldn't come out, was wailing about how this was this was the uh, the emergence of fascism in America. I thought I thought you were going to say he locked himself in a cubicle and no, no, started um, to edit a I mean, book we haven't or something. Done, we haven't done the, a Foucault on acid episode. I suppose we're not at that point in the narrative quite yet, but we will have to do a Foucault on acid episode at some point. But yeah, so that's the bathhouse. So sort of a history, there's the sort of a history there. And obviously there is this sort of iconography in people's minds and of course, you know, within gay culture, going back to the late 19th century, for people who understood themselves as homosexual or homophile or inverts, or whatever they call themselves, and who were trying to find cultural historical resources with which to, you know, deconstruct their socialised feelings of shame, then classical sources are often quite important, the Greeks in particular. You know, if you, if you were a posh gay guy in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, you wanted to stop hating yourself. And one way of doing that was to reflect on the fact that everybody knew that the Athenians didn't have a problem with same-sex sex, as long as it was, you know, conducted in the correct manner. 
and under appropriate social circumstances. And so, and the idea of the bathhouse being associated in people's historical imaginations with classical civilization, I'm sure lent some weight to and glamour to the idea of the bathhouse as a place for same-sex attracted people to congregate and meet each other. I'm saying that because partly, because I, I think, again, just this is just my, I'm just thinking about my own casual impressions of what pre-AIDS gay culture had been like. I mean, to clarify this, you know, I mean, I am the age that by the time I was in my late teens, early 20s, the gay, the, the AIDS crisis had been in full swings for five, 10 years. And by the time I was at university, it was absolutely central to gay political culture that the AIDS crisis and and say and promote trying to promote same sex safe sex was really really central so the sort of general vibe amongst the gay guys I knew who were like a couple of years older than me and sort of political role models to me was quite censorious I mean it was kind of looking it was it was I wouldn't say censor maybe not censorious is the right term but they definitely the vibe was things like the bathhouses were finished. That was something that the previous cohort had had fun with, but they'd also been associated with with the spread of AIDS, and it wasn't something you know that was likely to come back. Unless um, maybe that's not exactly right, because there were pe- there were people going to things not bathhouses, but there were people engaged in kind of you know quite promiscuous sex, but they were practicing safe sex. But either way, there was this sense of it being a thing that sort of belonged in the past already by that point. But there was also this sense of it having been sort of central. So it's interesting to me in a way to realise that, well, it, 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 it was central for a while, but it had only really become fully crystallised in the form that we came to understand it, the idea of the gay bathhouse. It was only really fully crystallised at this point in the early 70s, I think. Yeah, I mean, certainly if we sort of, you know, read history backwards, then the gay bathhouses were major targets for the New York and I think in San Francisco as well administrations uh, in terms of clamping down on what was perceived to be a highly contentious at the time form of sex that was seen to be spreading AIDS uh, in an exponential way, Um, certainly from the, you know, from the LGBTQ point of view, um, this was a gross clampdown on civil rights, um, that people fundamentally had the, you know, should have the right to have sex, um, consensual sex uh, under their under their own terms. And the continental bars, interestingly, became, and, you know, and other bathhouses and indeed some sorts of club venues became very important spaces for the spreading of information on safe sex. Because the one thing that is kind of is kind of clear in all of this is you're not going to be able to stop any you know any group of human beings from having sex. Um, so the issue became one of one of education and the bathhouses, which were historic institutions within gay culture, within queer culture, became very important ways for this information to be kind of to be spread. And of course, there is always also the, the possibility of gay sex, and also in these this time of a crisis and extreme homophobia uh, because Ronald Reagan was heavily indebted to the Christian evangelical right for his election in 1980 and uh, and you know effectively 
shied away from making any public statement about AIDS or even using the word AIDS in public until I believe it was maybe 1986. So that was part of the payoff, I think, to the moral majority was to, you know, stand by and in some some cases, in, in some ways, encourage this kind of hyperbolic reaction to AIDS. So there's all of that. I mean, to rewind back a little bit to the beginning, I mean, it comes back to a point that we've made previously, I, I believe, which is that, you know, because of the illegality of queer sex, gay men were forced in many respects to seek out sex in public spaces. And the Continental Bars were one of a number of places where where queers would congregate. They also went to parks, alleyways, stations, you know, movie theatres, especially around Times Square. Public lavatories, of course, uh, were also significant. And as you said earlier, gym, gym changing rooms as well. Love is, love is. Love is the message. It opened, as I said, I think in 1968. The owner was uh, this guy, Steve Ostro. It was located on 74th Street and Broadway. Um, I think when it's kind of, I remember seeing some adverts for it maybe placed in the Village Voice. They didn't directly advertise the fact that they were kind of, you know, they existed in order to, you know, as places for gay men to meet and have sex. They were much more kind of subtle than that. And they kind of, uh, they were using the kind of ornate language of gentlemen's clubs and sophisticated club meeting places uh, in order to kind of, you know, effectively kind of convey what it was that they were uh, doing. The police were, as with Stonewall, you know, the police police played this, the same game with the baths. They would occasionally would raid. This would follow usually an officer going in. I mean, the same kind of stuff was going on all over, actually. But an officer would kind of go into a bathhouse, would entice a gay man and, um, and would entrap the gay man, you know, because as soon as the gay man res- responds by, let's say, wanting to kiss the police officer, or who knows what, at that point, the police officer would kind of whip out not uh, <laughs> his cock, but a pair of handcuffs, basically, and uh, and this was the this was the routine. So that as a, a, a at a certain point, I think probably in 1969, maybe in 1968, the detail isn't too important. Um, the police department effectively um, went to Ostro uh, and and made this estimation that the Continental Bars was taking making about forty thousand dollars a week in revenue and asked Ostro if he would like to buy tickets costing $100 each to go to a policeman's ball. And it was held every Friday night. Actually, sorry, to buy 40 tickets at $100 each um, to go to the policeman's ball. So anyway, it was just a kind of way for the police to set up their payback in order to allow the Continental Bars to function. The bars really took off in 1970 when Georges Latour, who was this Peruvian dancer, and in 1970, as a, a frequenter of the Continental Bars and also the lover of Steve Ostro, uh, Georges Latour suggested to Ostro that he start to introduce some shows not to introduce some shows, there were already shows, but to change the content of the shows. So up to this point, some entertainment had been provided by Ostro, which um, who was an opera fanatic, and usually it would inv- he would invite opera singers to perform in the continental bars that plays on what you've identified, Gem, as the kind of classical kind of status, if you like, of these institutions. 
And Georges Latour sort of thought, well, you know, why don't we have some other different types of music? Because not everyone uh, particularly likes opera. And at that point, Steve Ostro decided to launch a regular Saturday night show uh, that featured up-and-coming performers. And this was when Bette Midler was given her big break. Steve Ostro and Georges Latour went to see her perform at another venue where they were showcasing talent, and they decided to get her along. And this became a kind of significant point in Bette Midler's breakthrough. Um, she performed at the Continental Bars. She developed this kind of electric relationship with the gay crowd that was congregating there who quickly came to kind of idolise Bette Midler. So why don't we have a listen to one of the songs that Bette Midler broke through uh, around this time? And this is a track called Do You Want to Dance? Really, it's an interesting track. The voice is really impressive on it, and the fact that Bet—I mean, Bet Midler is such a household name, and she's really associated with Broadway. It's kind of remarkable. She started at the Baths, and this was on a sort of disco imprint. This record, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, from what I know. It's it's uh, slowed down, kind of from the original, um, which I think was by an American singer by an American singer called Bobby Freeman. From 1958, this slows slows it down, but yeah, you're right. It's a really, I mean, it's a captivating and com, you know compelling kind of you know voice and performance and delivery. And I think this was something that really my my understanding is it really kind of got to be kind of properly cultivated within within this particular setting. So it was the, it was this kind of scenario that there was Saturday night performance, weekly performances taking place, and I think I believe that at some point, reasonably early into this idea, it was maybe even a, uh, it was kind of general members of the public were also admitted. Although now I'm thinking about this a bit more carefully, this was almost certainly a few years later. But it did leave uh, Steve Ostro with this situation that a lot of people would kind of come to the Continental Baths on the, on the Saturday night for the shows in particular. It was a kind of, these became quite big attractions. And then the question is like, so, you know, what do you do with them? Um, you know, they, you know, first of all, they needed to kind of give them a, uh, give them something to drink if they wanted a drink. So I think they opened a bar. Um, but at the end of the show, there might be 300, you know, 300 people or so kind of in, in the continental bars, not really sure what to do with themselves. So at this point, uh, Georges Latour, who had been to the sanctuary uh, and loved the sanctuary, uh, suggested to, to Steve Ostro that they open a discotheque. Um, I probably should mention at this point i mean it's something we'll come back to later because we we're not really quite going to get into this in in this episode i don't think but the continental baths was um the first place where larry levan got his you know his djing breakthrough effectively his first djing drop so it does go on to be quite significant in kind of ways that extend beyond the predominantly white gay community that was was congregating there Anyway, the dis- this discotheque opened in 1970 and effectively became uh, the first gay male discotheque in New York City, um, if we're going to kind of agree that already the discotheques that opened on Fire Island preceded it as kind of effectively all-male all gay, 
gay settings. Um, but there were some limits. The sound system was not wasn't particularly developed. Um, certainly, the discotheque was secondary to the to the bathhouse. People were going primarily to kind of hang out and have sex. They weren't necessarily if the, if they people really wanted to spend a night dancing, they would probably try. They might well try and find a, another venue. But there was something kind of interesting also happening. I think in terms of just this wider setting and, and what was going on. I mean, in a sense, there's this kind of, you know, I don't know if you want, we want to call it a tribalistic element to dance culture, but the, on some level that got accentuated within the continental bars because, you know, the men there would basically be wearing nothing but a towel. This is the attire, if you like, that people would, would be wearing when they went onto the dance floor. So some of the signifiers that, you know, often, you know, would kind of denote one, say, class status that in all sorts of other venues, certainly the venues that were dominating the, the landscape of New York City in the, the second half of the 1960s, whereas a lot of these venues, you know, how you dressed was seen to be kind of, you know, a really important part of kind of, you know, where you were coming from, um, your identity, if you like. In the Continental Bars, that all kind of gets to be removed, really. And I think it's there's a sense in which that, along with this kind of, Lack of any clear-cut boundary between going into a cubicle and having sex, or even you know, multiple you know, multiple sexual experiences during the course of an night, and going from that, going onto the dance floor and back again. So let's have a bit of music. We have played this before, almost two years ago now. So we're going to play it again. We'll probably play it again and again in the show because it's such a seminal classic. The Equals. Black-skinned, blue-eyed boys. A very classic, seminal piece of funk on the point of becoming disco, absolutely expressing the desire for a deliberately miscognated, mixed-up, polymorphous form of social experience. And I have to say, to me, the emphasis on boys in the lyric has always had a sort of homosocial implication. So I think it's quite appropriate to reflect on the utopian energy of the emergent queer scene at this time and how that might have resonated with a record like this. So let's hear the equals. So what's happening at this time, as we've alluded to before a little bit, is within queer culture, although the term's not used at the time, we have to be clear about that, queer queer is just an insult at this time for same-sex attracted people, and it doesn't get reappropriated as a positive term until the second half of the 80s. We've got so used to using it that people do often use it retrospectively and historians will use it, but it's important to note that. Of course, to some extent, the term gets used from the second half of the 80s onwards to try to denote something which is emerging, although it doesn't really have a name, at this moment in the early 70s. And that is a sense of people refusing and resisting heteronormative modes of sexuality and understanding this as, in some sense, a deliberately or a proudly politically radical gesture so broadly speaking up to this point 
insofar as people have been out, as we would say now, or been self-conscious of having some kind of identity based on being same-sex attracted, or mostly insofar as there has been any sort of discourse from advocates for those people or by those people, since the 19th century, it has taken the form of claims that people, that wider bourgeois, respectable society had no reason to be afraid of these people. That their fear and distaste for those people was grounded in misapprehensions, that all they wanted was to be allowed to have mature adult relationships with other mature consenting adults who happen to be the same sex as them and to otherwise live a completely normal life. And this is and it's certainly true that there were um plenty of people who that is how they felt and they had no interest in any other form of social or political radicalism. But what under the influence of the counterculture, under the influence of the sexually liberatory politics strands of the counterculture, under the influence of theorists like Marcuse and Deleuze and Guattari, and going back to people like William Reich, theorists who all in their different ways understood some aspects of normative sexuality in advanced capitalist societies to be repressive or oppressive. Under the influence of all those thinkers, you start to get the emergence of people who are, as we would say now, they're queer, they might be gay, they might be bi, they might be classifiable in some different way and they see themselves as engaged in a sort of radical act in some kind of radical act there's various ways people have of conceptualizing that there's within i would say within the actual movements of gay liberation in britain and the states from quite early on there's a certain kind of marxian theorization which is quite similar to, well, it's really derived from certain kinds of socialist feminist theory, which is thinking about the way in which the conventional nuclear family, with its strict gender division of labour and its strict modes of regulating sexuality, had apparently become central to the reproduction of capitalist social relations, had become central to the way in which capitalist society functioned. In some of that rhetoric, there is what, from a historical perspective today, looks like a fairly quaint, I think, sort of overvaluation of how dependent contemporary capitalism at that time was on, say, the heterosexual nuclear family. So there were definitely people running around claiming in pamphlets or what have you that uh, simply by not participating in heterosexual normative nuclear family, uh, queer people were engaged in a revolutionary act of you know, struggle against capitalism. Nobody would really take that seriously today because we, we've seen that capitalism has adapted itself perfectly well to people not doing that. Also, though, I have to say it's kind of interesting because I, I, I did quite a lot of research for this episode for this week, and I, it was I couldn't really find any I couldn't really find anybody saying that very explicitly, like in a sustained sort of book form. And I will talk about some of what I found in terms of or what I already knew about and revised around what we might call the gay theory or queer theory at this time that actually got developed into book form. But I think a lot of these claims were being made in polemics. And to be fair, they were often being made by people in their early 20s, really, who were kind of caught up in a radical revolutionary wave of the general ferment of the counterculture. And to some extent, their sort of over-enthusiasm for the implications of their potential liberation can be forgiven. 
so I don't really have a source. I mean, somebody out there might tell us one. I don't really have a source for somebody kind of nailing, right, putting this down in a very deliberately worked through form, make this sort of claim. Although it was still a claim that people were making, again, in, you know, people in, in revolutionary anarchist groups, for example, that I knew were still making this claim by the early 90s. It was. I guess it's got something to do, it's got something to do, presumably, with just like the basic process of reproduction you know capitalism you know it was partly about there was a there was a a repressive element of capitalism it's linked to protestantism the idea that you know you you subjugate pleasure in order to kind of you know work hard yeah exactly yeah um, that's definitely for the good of society and you will be rewarded in your afterlife well you know this was all about you know the it was all about kind of the immediacy of pleasure and the enjoyment of pleasure and then of course there was within the protestant heterosexual patriarchal and all these other words nuclear family there was you know this this thing of indeed having kids that would enable population growth that would enable an economic growth that would enable you know uh depending where we're placing the narrative colonial growth you know we're we're also this we're in the 1970s aren't we we're still kind of this is the end of the this high period of growth so and it's this emphasis on subjugating everything to the kind of you know various forms of production yes exactly it's like you know sexual pleasure that not being channeled into the goal of reproducing the labor force by producing children can easily be seen at this moment as being inherently radical of course that's also why on the same basis and allied to that tendency was the tendency for people to argue that just having lots of sex you know you and using the new contraceptive technologies in particular to stop women getting pregnant was also really radical Love is the Message, a podcast about music, counterculture, parties and politics with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. So this idea, at least the the, the requirements of, that we, you know, that we once once we get to a certain stage in our life, we kind of remain monogamous and fixed within the family, etc. There was, you know, the argument was that this didn't necessarily lead to kind of much happiness, and um, there's no way to generalise about this. But the idea that kind of one model fits all is clearly, you know, problem is is problematic, and the idea that you know one should live according to one model or one's life is also potentially problematic. But what did sort of emerge is this, as, as, the, as sort of an idea, I think, that there was something politically more advanced and more radical within the act of gay sex itself. And while all of these contexts kind of were true and could be a point of critique, I'm not entirely sure that it's, let's say, more politically radical to be promiscuous than to be monogamous. Well, I mean, he's going back to the 19th century, there are advocates of what was called free love, which meant really meant non-monogamous sexual relationships, emotional relationships, and what which means what today is called polyamory. And those people do have an argument, and the argument is monogamy is based on the idea of sort of being each other's property. It's based on it's a fundamentally capitalistic, individualistic, proprietorial attitude to relationships and that if you really want to break with the hold of liberal individualism on your subjectivity then you have to break it at the level of sexual desire and intimacy which I I just think is fine in theory I remember the funniest thing I ever saw anyone post on social media was um 
uh, Sebastian Budgin uh, posted on Facebook once years ago. Poly- <laughs> says polyamory makes so much sense uh, when trying to deconstruct the, the deep effects of uh, capitalist ideology on your psyche. Why not start with the easy stuff like sex, jealousy and relationships? <laughs> so, uh, which was a joke because it's not the easy stuff. It's the hard stuff. It's very, yes. very hard. <laughs> there definitely is a discourse around in the late 60s, early 70s according to which, yeah, just promiscuity is sort of radical because it's breaking with, indeed, that Puritan legacy of repression, that purity, Puritan legacy of deferring gratification and, and, and sublimation into good works of your sexual energy. And just why should you? Like, why shouldn't people? Do, and this is all just a form of social control and people should just enjoy themselves, is, is the discourse. I mean, it very quickly breaks down, you know, the most a lot of modern feminism and a lot of gay political theory from this point onwards is comes out of people quickly realizing that just fucking around a lot doesn't make you feel that liberated most of the, for most of the time and can reproduce doesn't and can just reproduce all kinds of power relationships as well. But it definitely is in the air. That that is an idea that's in the air at the time. I think more interestingly, in a way, is, is the way people were trying to specifically theorise queer sexuality at, at this moment and its radicalism and its potential radicalism. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of talking, so let's have a listen to some music. Double entendres, obviously not intended at all, is uh, Bobby Bird's Hot Pants. I'm coming, coming, I'm coming. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, well. When was that first release? All you need to say is 1971. Uh, you know, driving funk, which was, you know, hugely popular throughout New York City at that particular moment. There is this, you know, I think that one of these things that gets expressed in this record and is getting expressed more broadly is just the kind of, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, en- there's, an in- in- there's an intensification of energy. Yes. You know, I think this is this is just what's going on if effectively in society. You know, there's a kind of this media explosion. There's the beginnings of discotheque culture. Sound systems are coming through. TVs expanding. Everything is just you know we're into we we become very accustomed to this now. But I think this is a you know the post-war era is one of kind of very st- startling growth, or maybe I guess we could say the whole of the 20th century. And there is this interesting kind of correlation between you know what's going on in sex and what's going on on the dance floor and what's also going on in music yes that's you can true. sort of i think you can probably you can probably identify similar kind of developments going on in all three and kind of you know in a way you know coalescing or kind of overflowing interacting between all of these things we're talking about gay sex sex more generally dancing and music well i think this in- i think you're right and i think that. It's interesting the way that kind of intensification of funk sexual energy coincides precisely historically with this emergence of this intensification of a sort of libidinal, a, a libidinal libertarianism across sections of the counterculture and across the, the emergent gay liberation movement, for example. And 
at that time, I think probably the most interesting theorist of that idea, unsurprisingly, is someone in France. Uh, I'm very. I, this is a very difficult name to pronounce. I, th- everybody will, I think everybody would ignore these. I'm okay at pronouncing French names generally, but Guy is the first name. Hokongom, H O Q U E N G E M. Uh, and his book, Homosexual Desire, Désir Homosexuel, uh, Homosexual Desires, published in 1972. And I think it is probably the first book published which is very directly drawing on Deleuze and Guattari's anti-Oedipus. So it's the first sort of Deleuze-Guattarian study, for the sort of extension of their project. And it is really concerned with the question of why heterosexual society is so uptight, is so upset by homosexual desire, which of course is the big question. And this is the question. I mean, this is why people thought that it was probably true. People on the radical left thought it was probably true, as people on the right would claim, that homosexual desire, the expression of homosexual desire, had some sort of explosive effect that could detonate the nuclear family and bring, which was the foundation of capitalism, and therefore bring down bourgeois society as we knew it. I mean, in a sense, it has to be said it was the liberals who turned out to be right that that wasn't the case. Um, and um, but you can see why, given how uptight people were about it. And uh, it is one. So you can see why people, having been through this experience of of almost intolerable repression and quite irrational forms of repression, would see things in this way. And so, the argument he makes is really it's really derived from Deleuze and Guattari's idea that desire, human desire, it's not conceptual to be conceptualized as say Freud and Lacan and their tradition, and I would say a particular Western tradition going back to Plato to some extent conceptualize it which is that desire is the experience of lack it's the experience of this alienation or existential absence which you're constantly trying to fill with something whether it's sex or love or art or career or children that that's in itself is a limited way of understanding it that that actually desire should be understood as this productive force, this kind of emanating energy, this animating force of life itself, which is creative in its inherent potential and which only repressive hierarchical forms of social relations cause us to experience as a source of frustration and as a, and in terms of lack and absence and something being missing. And Deleuze and Guattari's model is that what they call it, the Oedipal society, Oedipal culture, the culture described by people like Freud, wherein peoples learn to experience themselves as sex, sexed, sexual and gendered beings in the context of a particular kind of family structure where the father, as the bearer of masculine authority, is the kind of source of social order, where the mother is always experienced as somehow lacking something, missing something, because she doesn't have the power and authority of the father. She comes to be represented by the phallus. All of this is a particular sort of machine for causing people to experience desire in sexual terms and in more than sexual terms in very messed up ways in very repressed ways basically according and part of the problem is that it forces people to experience desire according to the strict 
sexual binary, this strict division between masculinity and femininity. And heterosexuality sort of follows on from that, from that imposition of this grid upon the polymorphous flow of, of human desire, according to which you must understand yourself as on either side of that dividing line, and therefore as having a very particular kind of relationship to the other people, to the people who are on the other side of that dividing line. And to put it very simply, from this point of view, there is something about homosexual desire which is um, is freeing, is liberating, and is in some sense more pure because it isn't it isn't already captured by these social machines of regulation. Um, that's a real simplification. That there would be there could be a lot more to say about it. Uh, there are all kinds of criticisms you can make. Uh, in particular, Hong Kong Gom is really is really only talking about queer men. Uh, lesbianism is pretty much absent from his narrative. Uh, women are not absent from his narrative. He is trying to construct a, a theoretical position which is allied to feminism and feminist critiques, as do Liz and Guattario as well, uh, despite what some of their subsequent American critics sort of claimed, I think. And it's very primitive. It's very sort of simple. Uh, it's not as simplistic as you might expect, though. I have to say, I went in reading it, and I was sort of reading it this morning, um, and was expecting it to be much more simplistic than it actually is. It's it's pretty... You can absolutely see where it's coming from. And what is it advocating for? Well, abs- ultimately, it is advocating for a kind of... What came to be called in the United States, in, in queer theoretical circles by the 90s, what came to be called the libidinal politics, a politics which is about trying ultimately to liberate sexuality from any conception, any binaristic conceptions or conceptions of it which are restricted by gender, and really is aspiring to a sort of condition wherein ultimately the distinction between the homosexual and the heterosexual would itself stop to make any sense it would be it would become a meaningless distinction because as Deleuze and Guattari put it uh, we would be living in a world of n sexes n you know the mathematical symbol meaning meaning any possible number and uh, multiple forms of conjugation so that is and in fact i would you know i can, i can see how the Deleuze and Guattari's second book a thousand plateaus is obviously a little bit influenced by this book because they because they wrote it after so i so it is really interesting that people are having this really kind of utopian idea about what proliferating forms of sexuality might look like and about why the liberation of queer sex might be possible and of course we can sort of scoff at this now. We can say now, well, it's quite clear. No, we've got out gay MPs, and not just out gay MPs living in nice married couples. We've got out gay MPs, you know, being, you know, going and having, you know, multi partner sex at S and M clubs, and it doesn't stop them being gay. Tory MPs, it doesn't stop them imposing all kinds of awful things on people. But to some extent, the assumptions about the necessary political implications of some of these things are are, are not really right or have not been born out historically but there's also an argument that's been made by leftist gay and queer critics from the sort of mid-90s onwards which is that well there was a sort of revolutionary potential to this polysexual desire to liberate sexuality from constraints and what had to happen was particular forms of gay and queer capitalist identity had to be constructed from really from the 80s onwards which could sort of contain it and channel it particularly into basically forms of highly stylized and you know very expensive con- consumerism 
So that is an argument that has been made by subsequent critics, which in some ways would offer a bit of a, a defense of Hong Kong Gong, that he's not just, they would say he's not just naive, they'd say, well, he's sort of right at the time when he's writing, but what happens over the course of the 80s and 90s is that capitalism reconfigures itself in such a way that it can accommodate all these forms of desire, or some of these forms of desire, or, or something that looks a bit like the forms of desire he's talking about, even though it's, they're not exactly the same, actually. And that to some extent, it's the need for capitalism to reconfigure itself in that way, which is one of the main sources of the forms of capitalism that we are inhabiting today. And I think that's quite an interesting argument. Sure, I agree. And um, I mean, if we see this, we see this pattern reflected more broadly, don't we? We've sort of discussed it already. It's kind of informs, you know. A lot of our work, probably as well, uh, certainly kind of a very big theme for me in the in in all of mine, which is that you know the early stage of post Fordism contained a genuine you know it was necessary. It was kind of a lot of it came from kind of grassroots organic kind of movements um, by people who felt repressed one way or another, and in its early breakup of post-war life it appeared to be radical it was more creative uh, it was more spontaneous it, it expressed more freedom it was more fluid decentered all of these things and it was and it was often very communal as we can sort of see with this i think within kind of the the figuring of kind of promiscuity yes, exactly, you sort yes. of create a sense of a of a utopia which you know we also would talk about in terms of the dance floor everyone being there together is kind of equals i mean this is the point that i think i was trying to make about the continental bars but perhaps not in very effectively with all these guys around in in their bar in in their towels etc there was a sense of a new dawning of a new society in which kind of a new for, new forms of, of of equality come in come into play where things are not so rigid and hierarchical uh, as as was previously the case and i think this was genuinely felt and genuinely experienced and i think it was you know had some meaning really meaningful kind of effects and the correlation between this and what's going on on kind of with demonstrations on the streets or developments on the with the collective on the dance floor because in a way i think only the the collective experience of the dance floor only properly begins in 1970 and in some ways at least in terms of the wet the westernized dance floor as we're kind of understanding it um, because it's at that point where dancing is no longer restricted by you know men asking a woman to dance and going onto the dance floor and then leading on the dance floor for example so we're seeing the breakup of these kind of somewhat jaded, um, anachronistic, um, or at least, you know, limiting when imposed universally kind of um, forms of social organisation in, in across across all spheres at the moment and kind of, you know, promiscuous sex um, or, you know, a, a, you know, a focus on a libidinal economy um, has kind of quite interesting kind of progressive elements to it that are also quite collective and are ex understood as such. But skip forward 15 years and the same sort of thing kind of gets to be kind of changed formats. I mean, the displacement of, of bathhouses by, for example, you know, websites or apps such as Tinder, I think, are kind of indicative of this. Gay sex, arguably, maybe this is contentious, but I, I've certainly, I know this argument does exist and has a fair amount of support, but, you know, gay sex shifts something which is, you know, if you're meeting kind of, you know, 
men in in the bars or on in you know in kind of a park or in public toilets etc it's not kind of driven by a commodity exchange effectively but once you're once you once you're on somewhere like tinder you know just by the fact of visiting that website and subscribing etc and you know and that becoming arguably the not not just tinder but various kind of apps sex apps Dating apps. Um, this, if this, this becomes the over, you know, the overwhelming way in which socialization, including you know, meeting for sex, takes place, then it gets to be, you know, this is something that does get to be co-opted by capitalism, and of course, framed in the way that apps frame everything. So, so what was once potential becomes kind of less, you know, potentially radical and progressive, and and, and genuinely was in many ways becomes co-opted. So, so it's the wider story we're telling. Okay, well, in keeping with this general, this utopian theme, which is really what's informing a lot of the thinking and feeling around queer politics at this time, we could play a classic track, which I think we think we haven't played before, which is the Staple Singers' I'll Take You There, which becomes a real anthem for the loft. And is although it is essentially a piece of gospel, it's sort of gospel funk, it really has this very explicitly utopian uh, lyric and aspiration. And I think it does, and it's from 1972, exactly the same moment as the text from Guy Hokongom. And it really does give expression to the general desire for some very radical shift in consciousness and social experience at this time. No So mainly what we can see here is, as in so many other aspects of the culture and the broader polity, at this moment, 71, 72, you've really got this utopian energy, this radical, revolutionary aspiration for a complete change in the forms of social life that have been made possible and permitted by advanced, liberal, consumerist, Fordist capitalism. But... It would have to be said, probably the most lastingly or arguably the most lastingly significant political developments out of this moment are the ones that are looking for something a bit less revolutionary. So why don't you talk about that a little bit, Tim? Yeah, I mean, less revolutionary or or maybe not, I don't know. But the yeah, it was kind of out of the social institution of the continental bars, uh, as well as the emergence of the Gay Liberation Front, uh, the Gay Activist Alliance, uh, all the work that was going on around the firehouse, and, you know, years and years of, of campaigning as a backdrop to that as well, that the demand became much more and more forceful that gay sex be decriminalised. And this eventually came to pass in November 1971 and was overseen by the Republican mayor of New York at the time, John Lindsay, who we've referred to again previously on the show. Um, This fairly sort of remarkable figure who uh, (laughs) certainly comes across as being way more left-wing than 
many of the you know representative leaders of of today's kind of you know center left if you like or center um, or whatever we want to call it in both us and uk politics so this figure john lindsay this republican who's uh, very progressive and liberal oversaw the decriminalization of of gay sex so that was at a state level is that right um well john lindsay actually is doing in is in new york city so it's just a city um, level. he's not even new york city yeah a city level of course this is a difference for for listeners in different countries might be interested to know that this is something that can happen at a city or even a county level in the united states but legislative change of that kind can only be made at a national level in the uk which is messed up but true and still true today really so Steve Ostro, interestingly, was kind of very involved in in the campaign. I mean, I interviewed Steve Ostro for Love Saves the Day, and as he told me, we were central to the campaign. We set up tables on Broadway and organised a petition on the need to change the laws of enticement and entrapment, as well as legalise homosexuality. We collected 250,000 signatures and took them to the government. Um, so this is, you know, the guy, Steve Ostro, who's running the bathhouse, who's kind of, you know, central to kind of these efforts. Ostro also, um, you know, ended up telling me, he said that he felt that, you know, he and colleagues at the at the Continental Baths, etc. Uh, he said, we can rightfully take 30% of the credit um, for the change in legislation. The other 70% came from the Gay Activist Alliance. So it's an interest anyway. This is an interesting moment where political activists get together with people who are involved in, you know, are effectively entrepreneurs and have a kind of meeting of interests and kind of bring about change, you know, for that reason. I'm not saying that's kind of proposing this as, as the kind of the model that necessarily works, but it was the coming together of these two groups that kind of certainly enabled it to, to break through. I mean, I think we can we can look at these this the question of rights now today, and it's become you know it's it's you know there's a lot of debate goes around the kind of pursuing rights as a as a kind of political strategy. Certainly, the kind of more radical end of queer theory is quite cynical about, for example, the ultimately successful efforts of campaigners to enable gay people to get married in, in you know, in a range of countries. The question of whether, you know, this simply means that, you know, what, what was once a, you know, a, a, a potentially or arguably radical and disruptive project is simply buying into kind of you know effectively assimilationist strategies instead of kind of turning over uh, monogamy patriarchy the institution of the kind of you know the the bourgeois institution of the ma- of marriage you know instead kind of you know L- the lgbt community wants the right to behave in the same way as straights do and to start and and, and you know I, th- I find it hard to argue against the kind of rights argument no no i agree i agree as well and of, of course you know marriage Marriage is a social institution which fulfills a whole bunch of different functions. Like it is true that it's sort of a residue of, of patriarchy, but it's also other things. It's also it's also just the fact that, especially in a in a society which, like it or not, is made up of sort of liberal individuals, you need some sort of legal institution to govern the fact that two people agree they're going to raise children together, like whatever their sexuality or gender. You know, you need something to just make sure that once people enter into that extremely uh, demanding sort of uh, contract with each other, something 
governs it. And there are some, you know, there are there are some historians, social historians, who say that well, that's actually that's what marriage was, except among the the elite up until the nineteenth twentieth century. That, like in the but as late as the early nineteenth century, amongst poor people in Britain. You know, marriage wasn't. It, there wasn't all this ritual of the father giving the bride away and the woman being treated as a piece of property. What it was actually understood as a kind of equal contract, basically for the main, you know, for the people taking equal responsibility for the management of a household. Um, so it's all the thing is it's all of those things at the same time, and of course by the by the late sixties, under the impact of Fordism, uh, as has been as we've talked about on the show, has been written about quite recently by academics like Peter Drucker and Melinda Cooper. The, you know, the fa- the family has become so overladen with these different meanings and different expectations and social and institutional burdens that in, to some extent, sort of unpicking them is the thing that has to happen. That the idea that it's all just one thing with one meaning that you can just overturn with a revolutionary gesture is understandable but ultimately it turns out to be much more complicated than that because i think of course like of course on the one hand one sort of wistfully regrets the passing of the utopian aspirations for libidinal politics on the other hand look if you know we live in the society we live in and, and nobody would want to deny people who are you know, attracted to people of the same sex the right to form lasting legal partnerships and, re- and raise children in some way, this is this is the question that lingers. Maybe we'll, we'll return to it later. But I think that's what was going on at this point. Is that at this particular moment in the early nineteen seventies, there was a there was a kind of dream that new you know new forms of sexual sexual expression, new forms of you know moving you know coming together in in communal settings could map the way to a kind of you know a more evolved you know more egalitarian freer society. I mean, maybe this maybe this is kind of over exaggerated as well. I suppose now, on in a sense, we we kind of we we can sometimes feel like we we have almost too much liberty, too much choice. Um, so that this this that, that doesn't offer us a solution to anything right now, potentially. Um, and maybe the dream that you know through sex there will be some kind of liberation is also a kind of something which no one sort of holds but is is not is not as common it doesn't seem to be as commonly kind of articulated as it maybe was even back certainly back in the 1990s yeah i think that's right well that i mean that by the late 1990s and subsequently queer critics themselves leftist queer critics will start to see gay culture as having become one of the main sites where a kind of hyper commodified attitude to relationships and life in general is being tested and and exemplified for the whole of the culture and arguably one of the places that begins is in the fairly elitist environs of one of the very first arguably exclusively white gay clubs the 10th floor and that's what we're going to talk about start the episode next time talking about aren't we for the next episode, we'll be we'll be pretty rooted to the dance floor, and we'll be looking at the tenth floor, uh, flamingo, and twelve west in particular, which we'll look forward to. Okay, likewise. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, do go get if you if you get a moment, uh, tell your friends about the show. Give us a quick review. Give us just click the five star thing on a podcast app. 
if you are supporting us on patreon thanks very much those of you are we really appreciate it uh, if you're not if you can see your way clear to a few quid a month to help support the show please consider it if you can't that's totally fine we're broke too and have a good week bye-bye bye-bye, bye-bye.